Uh, he's using Marshall and Jesse and their teams, but uh, we're just so excited. Marshall's going to come and he's going to preach this morning, and yeah, go for it, Mark. Sounds good. Okay, see right. you. Take this. I don't want your Bible. Weird translation. Good morning. How are you all? Enjoying your summer? We're going to go back to February. And I know everybody that was here in February will remember everything I said when I was preaching through a series in Colossians. I went one, two, three. There's four. Now we're going to do the fourth. But for those of you who weren't here, obviously the ones that were here remember everything. We're just going to do a little recap. There's some real size of relief there. Of chapter 1, 2, and 3. So Colossians 1, as you start to open your Bibles, land in 4, but Colossians 1 has this picture of the preeminent Christ. If you remember that, we looked at the incredible all-creator Christ. The Christ who did everything, who put everything on the line for you. And as a result, we no longer call ourselves by our sinful nature. We identify with Christ. So we're called holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. If you remember that, you're like, mm, that was a good one. Man, Colossians 1 is so good. Just a picture of who Jesus is. So then Paul, in his wisdom, starts to write chapter 2, and he's talking about building up our foundation under Christ. Getting to understand that our identity can't be built on what we are, or what we do, or how we think, but it's built under Christ and Christ alone. We have that picture of the shepherd's tree, which found its roots 230 feet deep into the soil to find the life source of water. So even in the heat, in the desert, when all the other plants are dying, when everything else falls away, this shepherd's tree just produces green leaves because it's found the life source. We've got to build up our lives under Christ and Christ alone, under nothing else. That's our identity. And then three comes along and starts to give us some practical advice on how to live practically Christian. The do's and don'ts that people don't seem to like, but we desperately need. And then we land on four. Land on four, we have a little bit of information now coming from one, two, three, and then we're going to land on four. We're only going to do a few verses at the end of four is a lot of acknowledgements, but at the start, it gives us some incredible information. So we're just going to look at five verses, chapters two to, two to six. The first couple are kind of separated. The first two are about prayer, and then the, the second three are kind of looking at how we've called things into action. So let's, let's pray and then get into God's word here. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the families that are here. God, I know this, that as they enter these doors, there's no surprises to you. That you know the hearts and the minds, you know the brokenness, you know the desperation, you know the joys, you know the praises as they walk through these doors. Guys, there are no surprises here this morning. Even though those think that they just kind of stopped in or just kind of happened by chance, God, there's no surprises to you this morning. So I pray that our eyes and our ears and our minds would be open to what you have to say, not to what I have to say, not, not to any weird interpretation, but to God, what you have to tell us this morning, make it clear. Amen. So it might be on the screen there. Let's read together. Well, I'll read it. You just follow along because then it gets messy. Chapter 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door to the word to declare the mysteries of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't know if you grew up in the 80s and 90s. That's my, the best years of my life because I didn't have any responsibilities. 
But if you grew up in the Christian bubble, 80s and 90s, you would know things like Michael W. Smith, Salty the Singing Hymnal, and then an author, which maybe some of your parents didn't let you read, but Frank Peretti, right? Okay, good. Loved Frank Peretti. In fact, he had two books that I loved, and I still am reading through another one. It was called This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. You remember those books, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness? He had these scenes that he would kind of lift the veil. Now, they weren't, they weren't it's not scripture, but he's giving us a big deal. Church. And as he tries to build this church of 40 people, he sees it starts to deplete and he gets frustrated. And then you kind of lift the veil and you see the demons working against it. The demons working in the town, starting to claw at different people, getting in inside of leadership and elders and pulling people apart and creating division. And you see all this just disaster start to come on this little tiny church. And then there's this woman, this little old frail woman named Edith. Of course, that's her name, Edith. Little Edith Duster. Edith Duster is very frail. She has very little. It's a little apartment. But every day she prays, fervently prays, fervently prays, just prays and prays. And when, and when prayer meetings are on, she's the only one that shows up. And she's got a walker and she can barely make it. And she, she shows up to prayer meetings alone and just prays and prays and prays. And as you see the story of these demons attacking this little town, you can see them start to fall apart. You can see the devastation that this one little woman starts to create through this demonic realm, through this actual like spiritual warfare. You see her just start to slaughter hordes of demons with her prayers. I've always loved that imagery. I love, I love the idea that if we could actually see for one minute, if we could see what our prayers are actually doing, I don't think we would ever stop. If we could see when, when I start to pray for my kids, when I start to pray over my kids as they go into the schools, we start to pray over our pastors as they lead churches, when we start to pray over our politicians as they lead the government, when we start to pray over our workplace as we go in there into dark places, I don't think we would ever stop if we could see what our prayers were doing. I think often we use prayer more like a telephone. When I say we, I'll say I, because as I write this, as we learn this, I'm so convicted because I often use prayer like it's just this telephone that there's, there's this need or burden or desire that comes into my life and I just start picking up the phone and before I start my request, I just put in a couple praise reports, put a couple adoration lines in and then I start praying for what I need. There's a John Piper in 1988 said this, little grace for 88, you'll see that's some weird wording. Prayer is not like those remote control telephones that you can buy nowadays. <laughs> those are the ones without the super, like 25 foot cord that you'd rock around the house. <laughs> Prayer is not like those remote control telephones that you can buy nowadays. They store up energy when you're not using them and then they run down while you are using them. No, prayer is just the opposite. It increases in power the more it's used. And then when you hang it up, the power just drains out of it. Prayer is this unbelievable source that we don't always tap into. If you're a note taker, or if you're a highlighter, or if you're not, there's a little pen in front of your chair, maybe. If not, dig into your neighbor's purse, see if you can find a pen. <laughs> Open your Bible, and if it's not your Bible, circle it anyways. Take a look in here. There's three things. In verse 2, it says this. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Three things. Continue steadfastly. You can circle that one. 
being watchful in it, you can circle that one, and then with thanksgiving, steadfast in prayer. If we look at the actual translation, it would be courageously persistent, being courageously persistent, or another translation would say, hold fast and not let go. It's not like a telephone thing. This isn't like a hang up type thing. In fact, when, we, when we're in a youth group, we used to, when we did a, a popcorn prayer, we would say the first person picks up the telephone, the last person hangs it up. That's not good advice. Courageously persistent. I was actually reading an article from a young lady, a young lady who was in her mid-20s that had left her faith, born and raised in the church, and she had walked away from everything she had known. And as she started to kind of just verbal, verbal vomit about what she thinks about the church in this article, she said something that I found interesting. She said on prayer that the church talked a lot about prayer. And their people talk a lot about prayer, but in reality, no one really prays. If they do, they pray very little, and prayer meetings were always dead. I feel that a little bit. Like, I wanted to argue her a lot on some of the other stuff, but I feel this one a little bit because I am not very persistent. If I were to compare myself to any of the disciples, it would be those ones that keep falling asleep in the garden as Jesus is like, get up and pray. The hour is coming, get up and pray, and there's urgency to it, and I just keep falling asleep at the wheel. I'm asked to pray consistently and persistently. I struggle with that. In fact, in my teen years, I remember when my dad was diagnosed, I remember kind of wrestling with this. At the same time, in our, in our Bible study with one of our youth leaders, we're learning about this incredible sovereign God who's completely sovereign and knows all and does all and has full control over everything. And then at the same time, I'm learning that we're supposed to consistently pray, and I wrestled with that. Like, how do I understand it? How does a fully sovereign God need me to pray? And the leader just came up to me and said, you don't have to understand it. You're called to do it. Like, you're called to be faithful. You're called to pray. And there's a reason and a purpose, and God, who is a great creator and a great designer, has a reason and purpose for us to persistently be in prayer. Right along that story, this leader pointed me to what is probably now one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I don't know if we're allowed to have favorites. I do. I gave it away. There's a story where Daniel is, like, fasting and praying. He, he has this view or this vision and he doesn't understand it. And he's really nervous, and he's super anxious about it. Nobody here gets anxious and nervous. I get that. But when he's got this nerves and his anxiousness, and he starts praying, God, give me, a view, give me an understanding. Give me an understanding. When is this going to happen? What's going to happen? And you can see, even in the text, as he's getting nervous, he starts fasting and praying. And then this story comes. He's praying and fasting for 23 days. Daniel 10, uh, chapter 10 says this. Fear not, Daniel. This is an angel that has come and talked to me. He says, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. You see, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for, for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief, chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So this is what's happening. There's this actual warfare happening, like real spiritual warfare, things we cannot see, things we might feel, Things we might at times like be really aware of, but we can't see it. So Daniel is desperate for an answer from God and he's praying persistently and consistently. And then finally the angel came and he's like, man, I was on my way. 
I was coming and I came because of your words and I heard your words, but, but the demons stopped me. There was a war happening and I had to fight and battle against this war and I couldn't get through. So he actually calls the big dog to come in. Michael, you gotta come in and help me so we can skirt the lines, come in, deliver his message. And afterwards he goes right back. That's an amazing story. Like there is warfare happening and our, our battle lines, what we do is we pray persistently and consistently. Second part of that is not just to pray meaningless prayers, but it's to be watchful. Point two is to be watchful. Listen, if we're looking at this spiritual warfare idea and you're looking at these enemy lines idea, if we're on the front lines, we have to be aware of what's happening. Can't just be falling asleep in the garden. We have to be aware of what's happening. Attacks are happening. They're coming. And if you're not getting hit right now, then they're en route. So we have to be aware, be watchful, be ever-present, be constantly thinking, God, what do you need for me in this system? What is my need? What are the needs in the church? What are the needs in the family around me? What are the needs at school? What can I be praying for? What are the army lines? What does it look like? How can I be praying? And then pray and pray and pray as you walk through life, pray. There is another book, probably you've read it if you were growing up in the church by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters, if you don't know it, it's between a senior demon and a junior demon. A lot of demon talk, but we're talking a little bit about spiritual warfare. And there's this conversation between the senior demon teaching this junior demon, his nephew, Wormwood, how to like defend or how to defeat the Christians or those who are struggling in their faith. And they have this patient, this person that they're working on. And I want to read to you a little excerpt of what, again, it's not biblical, it's just what it might look like. The quote is this, the best thing where it's possible is to keep the patient from serious intentions of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult, recently reconverted to the enemy's party line, like your man here, this is best done by encouraging them to remember or, not to, or to think he remembers the parent-like natures of his prayers in childhood in reaction against that he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregulated. The enemy's idea is this. Let's not get him deep in prayer. If they're going to pray, let's just get them to repeat the nonsense that they grew up with that doesn't mean anything. And look, let's look at Matthew 6, verse 7 says this, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that, they're, uh, that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. We are called to be intentional with our prayer. Here's what I wrestle with, and as a dad, I wrestle with this because life is fast. You try to get through things, and sometimes prayer becomes a transitionary item. Got to pray because we got to eat. Got to pray because we got to go to bed. And we have a tendency to do these prayers, like these, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the food, thank you for the day, Amen. We really have to teach our children to walk away from that. We got to teach our ourselves to walk away from that. We got to teach ourselves to be intentional. And heart-focused when we pray. God has called us to be intentional, to be persistent, to be aware of the enemy, to be aware of what's happening around us, to be watchful in our prayer life. And then verse 3, it kind of explains a little bit. What does that look like? How are we a little bit more intentional? It says, verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison 
that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. There's three little points there. If you're circling, highlighting, underlining, there's three. Pray that God opens the door for the word. One of our intentional prayers is pray that God opens a door for the word. The second one is to follow that up so we can declare the mysteries of Christ. If you have a spirit in you, we have something that is unbelievable. We have access to the mysteries of Christ. We're called to pray that we can declare the mysteries of Christ. And three, and this is a hard one, it's sometimes so hard to deliver the gospel well, because somebody comes with a different life situation, different circumstances, and you feel all bungled up. It's pray that we can be clear when we deliver the gospel, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is kind of an incredible little text. This is Paul speaking this. This is Paul asking for these prayers. Paul is like the OG missionary, or the original gangster missionary, for you older folks. I try to keep it youthy. I'm embarrassed. Paul is this OG missionary. He is like the original guy. He's the guy going out, just, just spreading the word, dropping it like it's crazy. He's going everywhere. And he's asking while he's in prison, guys, while you're praying for me, shooting out letters to the front line, pray for me that I can preach the gospel clearly. You wrote most of the New Testament, inspired by the, the Spirit. But pray that I can speak it clearly. I can also picture him, because he doesn't just say that. He says, Pray for more opportunities. Pray for more opportunities. Like, I can see him in prison. I think Paul would be super annoying to be with if you were in prison. Like, when he's in shackles and chains, he's singing hymns. The reason he's in there is for doing that, and he, he can't stop. They didn't have duct tape. Don't know what they would have used. But he's singing hymns. He's preaching the word. He's like, at this point, he's looking through the gate saying, I've exhausted this guy. I've done that guy. This guy just came in. I've given him the gospel. He's looking around saying, I don't have enough. So he's asking people outside of prison, pray for more opportunities. I need more opportunities. I'm in prison. I'm limited. The guard's going to kill me if I say anything else. I'll still keep saying it. But I need more opportunities. More opportunities. This guy's amazing. Like how many of us have exhausted every opportunity in their life? How many of us could look, and my answer is I haven't, but if, if you could look in your sphere of influence, the people around you, how many of you could say, yeah, I've truly exhausted the gospel where I could? I've preached as much as I could to the, to the ones around me, so God, I'm asking for more and more and more opportunities. Like, how many of us today could walk out that door, and if you're not staying for the barbecue lunch, which you should, but go to a different restaurant, have a waitress come up that probably is desperate for hope, Maybe we stop at Walmart and we're in line and someone there is desperate for hope on the last line. Maybe someone here is going to go to an auto shop this week and the, and the worker there is just desperate for hope. Some of them may not even know it. Have we exhausted every opportunity we have? Because there's not a lot of time left. I don't know that for sure. I just turned 41. I feel like I'm at the halfway mark. When I sneeze, I blow my back out. <laughs> I don't know how much longer this is going to last. Sorry if you're 82. That, there's probably lots of time. But honestly, our, our clock is ticking. We're running out of time. Are we actually asking that God gives us more and more opportunities or are we just kind of stepping back more and more? Because we're older, we're going to kind of let things go. We're, we're not going to get in fights. We're not going to start uh, contesting with everybody that comes into our lives. Paul's in prison, locked down, 
And he's slipping letters out to the front line, the preachers out on the field saying, pray for me for more opportunities that I, when I preach the gospel, that I can pre- preach it clearly. For looking for ways to be persistent in our prayer life, to change that. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the day. Amen. Ask this. God, give me more opportunities. Open up the world around me. Let me see it. Because it's already there. Let me see it. Let me see those who are desperately needing. If we go backwards a little bit to, to the third point is, first is persistence, then it's be watchful, it's be in thanksgiving. Here's the key. If you are a Christ follower, praise God, because we're victorious. It's over. God, who is wonderfully outside of time, has already been victorious. It's done. So when we pray through these difficult situations, we can pray victoriously in thanksgiving that it is complete. Now, you are never asked to be successful. You're asked to be faithful. You're called to be faithful with what God has asked you to do. You're not asked to be successful. You're not asked to walk away with the win. You're not asked to walk away with the salvation. You're not asked to walk away with a repentant heart. You're asked to be faithful to what God's called you to do. So when we come to prayer and thanksgiving saying, God, you've already won. I'm already victorious. Anything can happen to me here. Anything can happen to me here. And I know it because I'm already victorious. And whatever you call me to do, I'm going to be faithful to do that. There's an unbelievable battle with brokenness and emptiness and hopelessness in the world around us. If you're a follower of Christ, you can be thankful this morning that while we wrestle through those things, we have victory in Jesus. So we can have joy in it all, and we can be thankful. And we're going to switch a little bit and go to verse 4. Walk in wisdom. Verse 4 says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. In my translation, it says, Making the most of every opportunity. Here's where we're going to start to wrestle with this one. Walk in wisdom. A lot of us, myself included, struggle with wisdom. If you don't, you struggle most. Wisdom is not just easy to come by. I don't have a lot of it. The more I deal with junior highs, I realize how little I have. It's a difficult thing to come by. So what do we do? Generally, if I'm struggling or if something comes up in my life and there's this crazy situation and I don't know how to deal with it or there's conflict or debate or, or I'm trying to preach the gospel and someone in my life does not want to hear it, they have nothing to do with it, I'll just be like, that boy needs Jesus and walk away. Like how much of us just kind of walk away from it? We just kind of ignore it. We don't want to deal with it because we don't have the wisdom or we're not quite ready. Or the other side is, you know what? I don't know my Bible that well. I haven't fully prepared my heart. I don't know everything. I'm going to let the church deal with this. I'm just going to invite them out to church and then let them do the work. The Bible calls us to walk in wisdom. What happens if we don't have it? Oftentimes I don't have it. So when I started this job, My first prayer, and it's been consistent, is this. God, give me wisdom where I lack it. James 1.5 says this. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Pray persistently for wisdom in your life. Pray persistently for wisdom in your life. If you lack wisdom, don't just walk away. Don't just give up. Don't just hide. Pray that God gives it to you. Here's what he says he'll do. God, who gives to all generously without reproach, it will be given to him. You will get the wisdom you're required to have. 
And then you have to remember, you don't have to be successful. You have to be faithful. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for an open door for the opportunity to share the word and then ask for wisdom to declare the mysteries of Christ. Church, it says we have to make the best use of our time. The best use of our time. I am often reminded how limited our time here is. The clock is truly ticking. When I was, uh, many of you know Cindy Jermiskog, who has gone now to be with Jesus and praise God. What a sweet thing to think of. She used to sit in the back corner with her oxygen tank with a joy and a smile on her. And before she went to be with Jesus, Eric, I, and, and Matt just went, we got to do a little bit of a hymn sing with her and just ask her some questions. And one day she said, would you like to ask me anything about death? I'm dying. Would you like to ask me anything about that? And we did. We sat and we chatted with her about death. And one of the things that came up that I think of often is she said, at the end of your life, whenever that comes, God gives you these like rose-colored glasses where you see everything differently. She says, as I look around my house, and a couch is really nice if you can afford it, but it all means nothing. Like it's all meaningless. Every morning she gets up and she goes straight to her little corner, she said, for her time with Jesus and coffee. And she would look and just say, everything else is just meaningless. Like she knew her clock was ticking. Some of us don't really think about that. And I don't want to think about it. But I do know my time here on earth is limited by God's design and he's asked me to do something. And, and, and I'm going to do a little side note because this is still one of the coolest things I've ever had someone say to me. She says, totally disconnected. But when I first got there, she said, Marshall, every morning I like to squeeze Play-Doh in my hand. Okay. She said, do you know why? I said, no. She said, because I'm weak and my sickness has made me very weak. But when I go to see Jesus, when he comes to collect me, I want to grip the hand of my master so tight that I'll never let go. Like, Man, that's such a, such a sweet view that Jesus is coming. We're limited in our time. Where's our focus? Where's our heart? What are we wasting or spending our time doing? Are you doing what we're called to be doing in the limited time that we have to do it? Verses continue, and it gets a little tougher for me. Point two, it says, let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. That always word is very exhausting. Let your speech always be be gracious. That means if you're in a bit of a tiff with your spouse, just speech always be gracious. If your kids are destroying your ability to sleep, let your speech always be gracious. With your enemies, let your speech always be gracious. With the people at work that never agree with you, let your speech always be gracious. We're called to always be gracious. That actually applies to people who aren't very grace-filled like who aren't very kind, you're called, if you're a Christ follower, to always be gracious. Some people are very good at that, find it very easy. I do not. Others here do not. I've spoken with them. <laughs> Church, let your speech always be gracious. And then let it be seasoned with salt. Salt does a few things. Salt adds flavor and taste. If you're in a conversation that's going to be full of conflict, there's going to be a debate. Maybe it's with an outsider. Maybe there's a conversation with someone who doesn't have the same beliefs, beliefs as you. And you bring grace into that conversation. 
Just seasoning that conversation with salt, seasoning your words with salt, it's going to bring flavor and it's going to bring taste to a very difficult conversation. And not only that, it's going to preserve. Salt preserves as well. It doesn't allow decay in a world and a culture that is constantly decaying, full of rot. A culture that is full of rot and lies. When we come in, followers of Christ, we come into a conversation, outsiders, be gracious and bring some of that salt, something that will preserve your, t- your mouth, your tongue, as it being used to flavor the conversation. We're called to be grace-filled. Now, sometimes that gets a little distracted here. Like sometimes for me, I, I don't always want to get into a crazy battle with somebody. In my past, I loved debates, and I could crush anyone, and I would, and I enjoyed it. So then I brought truth into the scenario, and I just destroyed someone and left them broken and angry and bitter because truth was so important. Just left grace behind. God is calling us to bring grace into the conversation, but he never calls us not to bring truth into the conversation. See, that's where it gets a little bit hard because sometimes now I, I don't want to bring truth. I just want to be grace-filled and just, just give grace and say, okay, that's great, and just back out of the difficult conversations. And then truth is left off the table, and then it leads to brokenness and bitterness and anger and hurt. So we're called to balance grace and truth really well. How do we do that? We balance it really well with love. The greatest of the two commandments is love God and to love others. We balance the amount of grace we give is because we love people. I remember on one of our students uh, a few weeks ago as we ended our Christian sexuality course, the very end we had to sit down, uh, me and one of our leaders, and he said, man, I am wrestling in, in hockey right now because somebody keeps, actually I think it was a few kids, keep just blowing me up with racial, bigoted, hurtful, hateful comments. Like, they just keep going after me and after me and after me. And there's, there's just, like, racism and, and this bigotry that they, I can't stand it anymore. So sometimes in the ice, I just take it out on them. He's like, what do I say? I don't know what to do anymore. And we wrestled because my heart is like, blow them up. <laughs> I hate racism. I hate bigotry. I hate division. What does Christ call us to do? In this, in this, he calls us to be gracious in our speech. That's going to be really tough. Oh, no, it, we never said it would be easy. Nothing here says it's going to be super easy. Called to be gracious and then add some salt. So how do you respond? The only thing we could respond with was you're supposed to be gracious. And even 1 Peter 3.9, it says, it says, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. I got to tell this kid now, you got to go bless him. Fortunately, it's not my words, it's God's words. It's not my wisdom, it's God's wisdom. We're called to be grace-filled with truth and to hold those together with a love that is so outerworldly, people won't have a clue what happened. Like you would hit them with a love so irrational that it makes them ask you, what is it about the hope that is in you? Like, what, what is it about you that would, that would cause you to love me in, in this scenario where I've done this to you or I've argued you or I've attacked you or I've come after you? And then you get to start doing a defense of the gospel. God has this all set up. He's got it all mapped out for us. 
He's kind of got it laid out that if we follow these instructions in Colossians really well, we as a church will have ample opportunities to preach the gospel. And where we find ourselves not having those, we start praying persistently, just like Paul did, for more opportunities. And when they come, we start sharing the gospel in a way, in a world that's so full of rot and deception and lies that we stand out because something is strange. Something doesn't make sense. So call the worship team back up. And wrap up on this verse, if we can put it back on. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's our first step. Even today. Even today, start praying steadfastly and persistent. Pray in a way that shocks the world around you. Pray in a way, in a way that shocks yourself. Just walk through life in an open communication with your creator. He's listening. He's there. He's present. There's no, there's no requirement to fold your hands and close your eyes. It's a really good one if you're easily distracted. Walk through life communicating with God, loving God, getting to know God. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Church, we should be praying that God would present us with opportunities to preach the gospel. Don't be scared of that. You're not called to be successful. You're called to be faithful. Don't be scared of it. Just preach the gospel. Don't fail to get to know it. When you go home, you gotta open this up. You gotta start reading it. You gotta get to know it. God calls us to be faithful that we might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Church, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Our time is limited. We are limited. We are finite. God is not. Let's use our time well. And then as we speak, let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Praise God for his word. Amen. Man, his word is good. Let's pray. You can stand as we pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. Thankful that you would give us just these minute instructions. I don't know how to do this. And you say, ask for wisdom. God, I don't know how to, I don't know how to speak well. Then ask for wisdom. And then, and then when I do speak, God, you've called me to be gracious, to season my conversation with salt, to add flavor, to add, to add a preservation into my conversation. God, you've given us instructions. It's our, it's our duty now to follow it. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, God, I pray as we walk out of here that we would know you more, that we would love you more, but we would even follow you more. You've called us to pray. I pray that we would speak to you openly, daily, not hang up the phone, but we would be in a conversation with you, something that would lead us to know you more. As you guide us through your word, God, we thank you for this morning that we get to sing together, that we get to have burgers together, that we get to spend time together. And as we leave, God, knowing that we'll come back to edify each other, build each other up. But as we leave and go into this world, God, I pray that we are faithful with what you've called us to do. In your perfect and holy name, amen.